0: Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. All right, that was the best five minutes of your life. We're going to start a little early because um, this is the, the, the message. Um, I had, a, I had a, 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 I still have a friend who was a, a pastor for a long time and no longer is. Um, his name is Jeff Heidkamp. Does anyone remember Jeff Heidkamp's message on sobriety by chance? It's one of the best sermons ever, ever given here. It was online during the pandemic. If you want to go back and um, look for it it would that would have been 2021 2020 um it was so good but um one of the things that he mentored me in, in is preaching and he's like hey you know what when it's like dark outside and it's cold and the weather's bad that's where you talk about the joy of the lord is my strengths so you just get it nice and easy people saying like wow i feel really really good about me slap yourself in the back heels but when it's bright and warm outside This is where you get to biblical truths that people don't always like talking about. Well, it is bright outside, so you can tell what we're getting at. We're in a series called uh, We Are, and the whole idea behind it is like trying to explain what kind of community we are. And again, um, I preface it every time because it's important. If you say, like, um, as a family, that health is part of your values, right? You're going to say, we want to be a healthy family. You can have that as a goal. doesn't necessarily mean that you're a healthy family right? You have to evaluate and see what systems we have in place, what habits do we have in place that reinforce us, and what do we quantify as healthy? Is it just financially? Is it, is it our bodies? Is it our mental health? Is it education? You get to decide that as a family, but if you never define it, you can't quantify how close you are. I think as a church, it's really easy for church is just to say, yeah, we're, you know, we're a good one right? We're a good church. And I would, I've never met a pastor that says, we want to be one of the bad ones, right? We want to be toxic and horrible, right? Um, and so instead of just like guessing who we are, the last few weeks we said that we are a Christ-centered community. We're a Jesus-looking community. That we are a, an inclusive community. That we're gonna put time, energy, and money into um, our bylaws, what we talk about, who's up front talking, the things that we post, um, uh, who's in leadership as a way to include people that historically or culturally people have been left behind in churches so that we are a, um, inclusive of the LGBTQI community. We are inclusive of all different kinds of um, uh, movement and ability that we want to be a place if you have kids, you don't have kids, you can't have kids, you're single, you're married, you're aromantic, uh, uh, so many different ways that we want to think through and move barriers to be inclusive. And then lastly, that we're a progressive community, that we are open to new ideas of thinking and being. Science does not scare me. I've had people like, what if you find out that this is not true? I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep pretty well at night, all right? Because science and faith to me are not enemies. They go hand in hand. And today, we are going to be talking uh, about a subject, but before we get to it, I'm going to tell you a story that kind of sets it up. Uh, I was at a sandwich shop. Uh, since I, I used to be gluten-free for... A long time, no longer my gluten free. I love sandwich shops, right? Because gluten free bread is a thing, but real bread is the greatest thing in the whole entire world. Um, uh, so I know that someone took a gluten free donut. So I'm in, so- I used to be in solidarity with you, uh, no longer. Um, what am I talking? Sandwich shop. So I'm in this sandwich shop, and I saw a family that I've not seen for, man. Six, seven years, and this family and I used to have um, a belonging in a certain community together. And I saw them, I walked up, and the, um, the students that were part of my, when I was a youth pastor, are now all adults, and I was talking, like, how's it going, catching up? And they're part of a community that's going through an incredibly toxic situation right now. And toxic doesn't do it justice. They're going through um, sexual assault within their community. And so, as you can imagine, if you're a part of a community that's dealing with that, there's all this feelings that come with it as it should. And so I saw him like, hey, how are you guys doing? And how are you handling it? And one of them said, you know what, Chris? God knows all sides of the story. God knows both sides. Every side that there could be. God. And they said it so passionately. They're like, but God really just knows all things. And since he knows, he'll tell us what to do. So we're just waiting until God tells us what to do of how to respond in this moment which um i have some personal feelings about what is happening um and i took very much offense to the comment because i said oh okay that's great if god knows all things why didn't god stop it right and they're like instantly looked at me they're like no put their hand up and said no No, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that, Chris. I am not going there. And I'm just like, hmm, okay, that's that's how convenient. Because if you say that God is all-knowing, then most likely this is a common argument. God's all-knowing, God's all-powerful, and God's all-loving. If God's all three of those things, then why did earthquakes kill, what, 25,000 people? If God knows all things, why couldn't God stop it? Um if God is all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing, why did only, like, some kids get rescued from that pile of the earthquake? There's still people being rescued. That would imply, because funny, when it's your family, your friend, your kid, like, God delivered our kid, right? Which is a normal statement. But it also kind of implies God did not deliver every other kid, right? Can you see how this is a monster God? And I no longer can worship a monster. I just, I can't, I I, I can't do it. And in that moment, I said it because when you have the ability or the privilege to be able to say, God knows all things and therefore I can pause, that is a privilege that the victims do not have. Right? That is a privilege that people who have been impacted by that situation just can't say, God knows all things. I'm going to sleep right now. Right? I imagine they've lost lots and lots and lots of sleep. I no longer can just imagine that a God only benefits those in power. Because that's the kind of God that that person, again, inadvertently, I don't think it was conscious, right? But inadvertently, unconsciously, has this bias of God is with the powerful. Which nowhere, I shouldn't say nowhere, which is a lens that we read to the Bible because Predominantly in here right now, we, everyone here, I should say, we are predominantly a white church, right? That means we have power and absolute privilege. We are predominantly a cisgender church, not everyone. We're predominantly a heterosexual church, clearly not everyone. And That does not mean those who, have the, those, who those who have the power doesn't mean we're better. Just because there's more of us doesn't mean that we are, like, the truthiest of all the truths. It just means we have a larger representation, which means what are we going to do with that representation? What are we going to do with that power? Now, before I move on, I have said this basically every time I give this type of message is that the reason that it's sunny and warm outside, in the light of recent history of things that happened, I felt compelled that we have to talk about this. And if you are white, and especially if you're a white man, this Talk can be triggering because some people hear, "Oh, I'm supposed to feel bad because I'm white." No, not at all. You're not supposed to feel bad because you're white. Oh, it's my fault that uh, I was born this way. No, not not at all. But you were born like I have a friend. Every time I had this conversation, not every time, the few first times we had this conversation, he's 18 years older than me. He's got several kids that are now adults. And I talked about it and I said, "Hey, friend, you know this?" And he's like, "Oh, I get it, Chris." Like so. My dad used to beat me pretty much almost every other day when I was a kid. Oh, so I have privilege that I watched my mom die in my arms as a teenager. I'm like, I am so sorry. That is absolute traumatic. That is horrible. That is evil. And I'm so sorry. And that is an obstacle. And that is a problem that is traumatic that I have not experienced. But of all those problems, the color of your skin is not one of them. Right? Right? There's intersectionality of what happens in our lives. Having white skin and being able to walk into a bank, walk into a function, walking into whatever it is, you are more likely to be believed than someone else. So I'm just saying that you might have those feelings. That is normal. That is healthy. I'm asking you to process through those. Those who are watching online is is the same thing. And so what are we supposed to do then? Right? If we if if god is not all knowing all powerful and um, all powerful all knowing and all loving how are we supposed to respond hmm this is good my my partner nikki wrote this and it sits on top of our website if you go to our social media it's our banner and this is what it says at neighborhood we are an inclusive christ centered church committed at neighborhood we are an inclusive christ centered church committed to allyship and anti racism work as a practice of liberation theology This is a word I throw out every once in a while, talking about how we should move in liberation. There's this whole section of God talk. Theology is how we think about God, how we talk about God, and how we engage and process what we believe God is or is inviting us to do. Right? And liberation theology is a way of thinking. It's not the way. What was handed to me before is like you can only hold on to atonement theory theology. You can only hold on to whatever it is. What I've learned is that you can hold on to multiple truths at once. Like, and here's the thing I love about our church, like Tom and I, I always pick on Tom because um, <laughs> he can handle it. Tom and I might have different ideas of of what God is part, inviting us to participate, what God is inviting us to do as a community, right? We can have, we can come at God from different angles and not one is bad or one is better than the other. It just is based on Tom's experience, based on Tom's addiction right based on our upbringing and our age we're gonna have different ways of thinking correct yeah so it doesn't mean one is better than the other so like i'm a a process and open and relational theology kind of person which just means god is in creatively experiencing and processing all of reality in and through us and all all everything in the world god is in that moment discovering along with us and cool, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so liberation theology here. Liberation theology um, is not coined by James Cone, but he was one of the first black men to write about it and was um, in his scholarly work um, published. Right here's what he says, page one, chapter one of his book, Black Liberation and Power. Right, and if you want to get that book, it is unbelievable. Um, this is what, page one, chapter one, sentence one. Christian theology is a theology of liberation. It is a rational study of the being of God in the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. So just to recap, uh, Dr. Cohn is saying the gospel is Jesus, Right? whatever we see Jesus doing, that we talked about last week, we were a Jesus-centered community, that in and of itself is the gospel. And that's liberation. It goes on. This is the defining sentence. This means that the gospel is the sole reason, is the sole reason for existence is to put into ordered speech the meaning of God's activity in the world so that the community of the oppressed will recognize that its inner thrust for liberation is not only consistent with the gospel, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Cohn is saying, the gospel is the person of Jesus. And the the written word of the gospel's sole purpose is to put in written order of what the gospel is, of who Jesus is. And that is for the inner thrust from an oppressed community that liberation is happening, or liberation is coming. That is the whole idea. Liberation theology believes that wherever God lives, God always lives with the marginalized and the oppressed, And how do we know that? Look at the person of Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, he was at a table, he was at a party, he was at a well, he was on a walk, he was at some field, he was by a lake, feeding hungry people, engaging with people outside of the dominant community. And why? Because this is what the gospel is. Always liberation. The hard thing with this is that as people, right, I'm going to just say us and those who are watching online, I, I imagine, um... We live in a society where we hold the dominant cultural norm, right? As white people, uh, we, as cisgendered straight people especially, we can hold the cultural norm, and we just swim in the waters, and just, we don't even realize all the bias or privilege that we have. If someone goes, well, I, I had this experience, I can be like, <laughs> I've learned not to use this word, I'm like, that's crazy that you had that experience at the bank. I remember walking in for my very first loan, and I thought it was going to be this whole process, and they're like, yeah, yeah, well, we can borrow you up to, like, $20,000. I'm like, I think I make, like, $15,000 a year. <laughs> there's no there's no reason they should have given me money, right?" But because I was a man, because I was white, I had a lot more believability, all right? I've learned this from talking with other people outside of my own experience. But when we frame things of just saying, or we interpret things as, like, oh, this is the norm. It's not everyone's norm right? And what we're going to do, I'm going to tell you two Bible stories of how we can interpret the Bible in the lens of power. And it's very important because everything you read in the Bible, Joanne, is an interpretation. Everything. We have no original manuscripts. Zero. So everything we're reading is an interpretation from interpretation from interpretation. Someone who heard something orally wrote it down. Like even in the, the letters of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he tells the women to be silent, Paul didn't write that, Right? Someone else edited it in there. Why? Because they had a favorable opinion of saying, hey, maybe the men should be the only one to talk. So they're going to say, oh, Paul wrote this. Right? That is an interpretation of what they want the Bible or Paul's letter to speak to a community. So you have to understand it's all interpretation. When you hear these stories, I'm trying to just share with you how it's easy as Americans, white Americans, how we can automatically assume the best. We believe those in powers. Always. Not always. Usually. I remember being a kid and hearing the story of King David, right? Anyone a fan of King David? And you're like, he's in your top weaver. He's like, yeah, he's in my top five. You're going to regret raising your hand in a little bit. So <laughs> um, the, the Hebrew people want a king. It's like, God, we want a king. It's going to be so great. And God, like, over and over again is like, no, no, you don't. Trust me. You don't want a king. It's not as good as you think it is. It's like getting a new toy, like at Ice Capades, and it works for a little bit, and it's like lighting, and you're like, yeah, and then like an hour later, it breaks, and it's done. God, that's not biblical, but God essentially says, you don't want a king, and why do they want a king? Because everyone around them had kings and kingdoms, and kingdoms bring taxes. Kingdoms bring strength. Kingdoms bring armies. Kingdoms bring food to feed armies, so you can have a full-time army. If you have a full-time army, you can do what? You could full-time army and destroy and take and pillage on your own. So the Hebrew people are like, yeah, woo! God, give us a king. Finally, God's like, fine, have what you want. What happens with the kingdoms, we hear some great stories. We have, like, in neighborhood kids, well, they don't. Um, when I was a kid, they taught these stories of, like, look at um, Noah's Ark and made it all cute. Nowhere did they say, oh, by the way, everyone else died. <laughs> it's like, oh, we don't tell that part of the story. In the same way with the kings, we'd always tell the whole story. What ends up happening with the kingdoms leads them to exile. Right? That's what happens. The story of David, how we can interpret through a lens of power, is when I heard that story of David, it was like David was on the, um, I'll use um, common language here. Um, David was doing his thing in his room, doing push-ups, probably watching Netflix, and he looks outside, and he sees this beautiful woman who's bathing on top of the roof. And he takes her in for all her glory, and he says, that's mine. I want that. So the story I was told as a kid is that David went over there and wooed her and said nice things and sang her boys to men songs and uh, did all these, you know, fancy things, lit a candle and says ooh la la, all that, right? Um, And she then, like, said, yes, this is what I want too. Yay, David, the king, all right? And they get biblical if you know what I mean, all right? Um, I love that word, get biblical, all right? Um, it's Valentine's Day soon. You can try out. <laughs> hey, honey, you want to get biblical? What are you talking about? So, um, um, and then David feels bad. And so he takes Bathsheba's wife and, or not her husband, and sends her to the front line where he dies. But the good thing is now she gets to belong in the kingdom and she gets to be a queen. Yay, Right, that's the story. How it's presented when you look through it through the lens of power. If you can decenter power when you read the Bible, and it's not always easy to do, you decenter the voice of Paul. You decenter the voice of Peter. And when Paul says you should be sexually moral or w- w- the, the, all the things he tells people to do, Paul has an agenda in mind. If you could decenter that and put it on away from David, and you put it on Bathsheba. Sheba was sexually assaulted. We'll use that as the kindest word possible there's power dynamics, right? How do you tell the king no how how do you say yeah no uh, you, you, this is what you do. He takes his power, he takes his control, and he takes her as his own, kills her husband. If you sent her her story, we don't know if they have what kind of history they have together we don't know if they have kids we don't we don't we don't know, but all of a sudden she's stripped of her agency, stripped of her own self, so that she is now with this guy. And guess what? She's now part of his, what, thousands of concubines? She's just in another line of wives David had? What a great life. Can you see if you center away from power and you go to the marginalized, you go to the press? this is where God lives. Another story, Matthew 2. The three, not three, the Magi. They come and they see the star. They move towards uh, Bethlehem. They're at uh, King Herod. And they're like, hey, we heard there's this new king. And King Herod's like, nope, no other king me. I'm number one. Woo. Uh, And they're like, no, we're pretty sure there's another king. And he goes, why don't you go find them and report back to me, and we'll have a nice party where we can all celebrate that we're both kings. Right? So the magi go, see Jesus, uh, and all of a sudden they get this idea of like, hey, maybe King Herod wasn't really being honest about throwing a party. Maybe he wanted to kill this king. Huh. So they – take an alternate route home, and they don't see Herod. Herod gets angry and says, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to kill every boy that's two years old and younger. Everybody in this region, they're all dead. Soldiers come out, and they begin to fulfill that command. Joseph gets a word from God, gets a premonition from God, saying, danger's coming, flee to Egypt, right? In this, the Matthewan community, they're trying to wrap up, like, five prophecies of, that's happening in a matter of, like, five verses. They're like, this happened, which fulfills this prophecy. This happened, fulfills this prophecy. Part of it is that they would go to Egypt, right? And if you want to nerd out about what prophecy means, I'd love—we can do that later. We're not doing it now. Um, I want to, but I won't. Um, so God tells Joseph to leave, which, again, we center the story on Jesus— And we think, wow, the hero of the story lives. The hero of the story, you know how it ends. Jesus dies and resurrected. Yeah, he got away. Awesome. That's centering on that character. What happens if you center on every other two-year-old that's not Jesus? Now it tells a different story about the Bible. Hundreds and hundreds of toddlers, infants, babies die but Jesus lives. What are, we, what are we to do with that? As people of power, as Christians, as people of privilege, we can s- so easily just target what benefits us the most without realizing the underbelly of when we choose power, we center power, we center like the strength, what we deem true. Now, to wrap up that, there's a, a womanist, I don't remember her name, womanist theology means it's theology told by black women. Feminist theology is theology told by women, predominantly white women. Um, what she talked about is how um, Jesus never left those babies behind. Jesus was the last of that generation. Jesus was the last of those kids to be executed in a similar manner. And Jesus is on the cross when he says it's finished wraps up all <clears throat> wraps up all those little toddlers and babies and says, "You're with me." We are one, and your death and your story is not at lost. Why? In John, it says there's a new sun with a new day and a new week, which means there's a new way of being human. Resurrection to oppressed, marginalized people is not, hey, we can tolerate all this brutality and strip me of my humanity, but guess what? I'm going to heaven someday, so this is okay. Never. What it is, what Jesus did in resurrection life is saying there is hope that what the injustice of this world has done to you doesn't get to win. There's hope as we, the, 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 the ark of justice, right? God always bends towards the ark of justice. It's coming, and we're gonna, we're gonna participate in the redemptive history of the world and humankind through the power and love of Jesus. Liberation theology hears those babies' voices. Liberation theology hears Bathsheba's voice. Liberation theology hears and sees today marginalized and oppressed people. So before we get to what we can do, one last story. James Cone also talks about the danger of um, whitewashing of how we make healing. Let's use that word. How we bring reconciliation. And he talked about If you're in power, you can look at other people, let's use the other, those who are marginalized oppressed, and say, hey, why don't you just be more like us? We got this figured out. Do you know how amazing it is to be us? It is really, really good. Um, And he says, when you do that, you're doing a, a violence to the person because you're taking your politics and your economics and your history through the lens and looking saying, we didn't do anything to deserve this. We just were born this way. Why can't you step into here? And the thing that he said that caught me, he goes, especially white um, Christians want to hold on to nonviolence. And it stopped me, because I am a huge nonviolent response guy. And I see the person of Jesus as nonviolent, that we're supposed to move in the way of peace and kindness and inclusion, which benefits who? Me. It benefits me. I never thought about the way I can move in nonviolence because <laughs> I don't have a threat of being a man walking down the street. I don't have to worry about what people might do to me or say to me. So I can be like, oh, we should all be it's the way of Jesus. That's me taking my privilege and my power and then putting it on Kayla. Say, Kayla, just be like me. Don't worry about it. Or putting it on someone else. And I remember the first time during George Floyd, that the George Floyd writes the Black um, Lives Matter, that flipped it for me is... I was sitting, I, I wish I remember who was sitting with someone, talking to someone who was a person of color, and it's when they stopped I-35 down the cities, right? They blocked all this traffic. I've said this multiple times. And I just couldn't understand it. I'm like, the people in the cars are just trying to get home from work. They're just trying to make sure that their kids are okay. This is kind of scary. This is kind of upsetting. And they have nowhere to go. Because they have cars behind them, they have cars next to them, they can have cars in front of them and they're just stuck for hours. And that person said, exactly. They're gonna feel that way for 90 minutes. What we, as black people, have been feeling for generations. Stuck to my left, stuck to my front, stuck to my right, stuck in back. I have nowhere to go except honk my horn and scream. No one will hear me and no one will move. It was the first time I'm like, oh, I live a completely different reality. Some people ask me, and I don't know why they try thinking I'm going to bait, they're going to bait me into some like, oh, I never thought about that. They're like, well, what do you think is nonviolent? What do you think about um, the Me Too movement, or not Me Too movement, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd, where they, you know, they um, protest and burnt down parts of the city. Are you in favor of that? I'm like, as part of my anti-racism work, they're like, well, you, you must be in favor of that. I said, no, I'm not in favor of it. I'm never going to be like, yay, violence but what I will not do is judge someone who has a completely different reality and experience than me. I've never been forced. The only way to be heard is to burn something down. So if that's what they have to do to get people to hear them and believe them, I'm going to center them and decenter myself. So as a neighborhood church, we participate in liberation theology. Aren't you glad that it's shiny outside? <laughs> what can we do? This is where we wrap up. What can we do? Because... Um, as a man uh, i don't know if any of you know this but as a man i have this tendency Beeble, that i want to fix everything quickly right if nikki comes to me and says you know my my stomach's kind of hurting i don't know i'm like i'll do it Uh, let me do it she's like no no you don't hear me I'm like i hear you you want me to fix it you're welcome i love you so much right werner you you're in the same company yeah so it's it's like i have a solution um and why am I telling this story? Oh, yeah, here's what <laughs> you have to listen. <laughs> That's the whole point, right? You have to listen. And the way that you can start by listening is educating yourself. We always want to get, like, let's throw money at it, right? Which is, can be good, but it's not always a solution. Let's go tell everyone about what privilege is. Sure, you can go for it. But the best place you can start is educating. I'm going to give you three books, and I'm going to give you a website. You can take it or leave it. First book, first two books are by Ibram um, X Kendi, and he wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you've never read that, highly, highly encourage it. He, especially if you can do it with like a uh, maybe some family members or a couple of friends, it helps be able to process. If you were more like a historical reader and like that kind of book, you're like, ah, but you want to know the history. He wrote a book before this called Stamped from the Beginning, which goes to the whole history of how the term black came to be and the whole slave trade movement that happened forever ago and how it came to America. It gives you a deep dive history in the whole slave trade. And then um, David Cohn's, yeah, David Cohn. I'm like, am I r- r- giving the baseball player's name? Is it-? Yeah, don't even tell me. Is it David Cohn too? Yeah. It's not David Cohn. Yeah, it is. C-O-I-G. Yeah, James Cohn. Thank you. James Cohn is the black liberation. Oh, David Cohn's a baseball player. Um, You should read his book too. Great. Um, uh, James Cohn's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, it's very short, and it goes to the history and the parallel between uh, the black... um. The, the lynch mobs in the south compared to the cross and puts them together. Uh, has anyone ever heard the song Strange Fruit? Right? Who's it? Is it Billy Holiday? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Billy Holiday saying it. it. And in this book, he gives a whole context behind it, which I never knew. I've heard the song. Strange Fruit is on the trees are black people swinging back and forth from being lynched. And it was the first, like, song that kind of, like, exploited this whole system that maybe there's something more. It goes to the story of Emmett Till being put on uh, a train going around America so people could see his body. Uh, it is, it is an outstanding book. And lastly, here's a website that I use for everybody if they want to. I, I shared it with you. Uh, if people have questions about uh, the Bible, race, gender, LGBTQI issues, whatever it might be, it's called soyouaredeconstructing.com. And it is a great resource. Not everything, Con, on that website would I 100% endorse, but I don't need certainty. I don't need to have everything fit what my profile, what I like. There's a lot of different authors. And on there, there's topics. And if you click on the topic of race, it'll give you about 30 different resources from podcasts, if you don't enjoy reading, of videos, of books, and blogs, and essays. There's a great, great resource. So before I pray, is that I've always wanted to belong to a community in a church, hmm. I've always wanted to belong to a church. And I've always wanted to belong to community. And sometimes those can be the same. And sometimes that community can be lo- larger than just people who go to our church. Does that make sense? Like community and churches inside that community. Of where we don't just have to play nice little games. Where we just have to talk about Psalms and we have to talk about proverbs and we have to talk about the resurrection and we miss on ways as humans, that we can make the world a better place. And more than just saying, hey, I love you, give me a hug, high five, but a way way of centering other people's stories. And it is hard, it is complicated, and it is messy. But I believe this is the work of Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we will wrap up. So God, I thank you that we are not left alone to figure this all out. Thank you for your spirit that comes and inspires us and prompts us to be able to see things maybe in a wider, higher way. And so I ask that you would continue to reveal to us of how we can move towards those who have been pushed to the edges. You'd be able to ex- continue to expose of ways that we can use our power and our privilege and our leadership and our creativity and our words and our tables as a way to continually include people and not just include to be like us but include so there can be equity and liberation. And I also pray that when we see injustice, we see a system, we see a policy, we, we see something online that disproportionately favors one group, those in power, that we'd be able to use our wisdom, to be able to speak up and begin to dismantle systems and rebuild better ones. I pray for my friends who have been have experienced violence and hurt and pain and loneliness because this system always left them out. They always got up right to the line and said, You should have tried harder. I pray that you, I know that you are with them. I pray they can awaken to the reality that you are in them and you're with them, and they are fearfully and wonderfully made. So use us, Jesus. We love you. Amen. All right. If you would like to process, or you'd like to pray, or you would like to rant, I am for all of that. I'll be here until the lights are off. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and go Vikings next year.